Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. You have a band, good or bad. It's a great band, it's a bad band, it's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what, there's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we're going to sit down with one of the most unique guitar players in rock history, former police guitarist Andy Summers. He's got a rock autobiography out that's actually pretty good. Uh, he talks about his life in the police and life with that guy named Sting. Plus, you'll have a Desert Island jukebox pick, Mr. Cott, and we'll have reviews of two really interesting new albums by California rockers, the Deftones, and the sibling duo of rappers known as the Clips. It's Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, and time now for some music news. To the lonely of earth Raise your glass to the good and the evil Let's drink to the salt of the earth Yes, Keith, let's drink to the hardworking people. <laughs> the salt of the earth. I don't think the Rolling Stones actually qualify for that. The numbers are official. Since August 2005, the band has grossed $437 million wow. on its Bigger Bang Tour, playing 110 concerts in front of 3.5 million fans. Billboard magazine says that is officially the highest grossing tour of all time. Now, Jim, it's instructive to look at the numbers here because you 2 played in front of just about as many fans over the last year and a half as the Stones did. Yeah, about... 3.4 million. Exactly. But their gross was $377 million compared to the Stones' $437 million. So that tells you right there, the Stones' ticket prices are over the top. I mean, U2 wasn't cheap either. Their average ticket price was 97 bucks. You could get into some of their shows for 40 bucks, but still, average ticket price, 97 bucks. The trend, Jim, is fewer people are seeing shows, but the bands are making more money. And, and to my mind, the, the, the bands we should be championing here are people like Dave Matthews, who are averaging a $47 ticket price, under 50 yeah. bucks, which in this day and age is still pretty amazing, and still grossing big money because they're playing in front of a lot of people, $57 million for the Dave Matthews tour yeah. last year. Now, the average Stones ticket price was $134, and actually that's misleading, Greg, the $134 ticket, because the, you know that's the upper tier where you're a city block away from the stage. <laughs> Anything remotely close to the stage on the floor of the arena is like $350. It's ridiculous. And it's a wonder the Stones made that much money, given that they uh, had so many problems this year. We got a lot of mileage out of this story, but if you remember in April, Keith Richards fell out of a coconut tree in <laughs> Fiji. Uh, wasn't the only problem. They canceled a couple of shows in Spain due to Jagger's laryngitis and uh, Atlantic City and New York and then Vancouver and Hawaii. They were, had, they were falling apart by the end of this Bigger Bang Tour. No wonder. They're in their <laughs> mid-60s. People have to slow down a little bit. And actually, because of one of the New York cancellations, a 
uh, a fan from Brooklyn filed a $51 million class action lawsuit accusing Jagger and the Stones of fraud and acting in bad faith <laughs> because people weren't given enough notice to cancel their hotel and plane reservations, which, of course, would have been first-class flight <laughs> and, and a kind of suite at the Waldorf Astoria if uh, you could afford the ticket price. Oh, my God. That is really rich. But still, even if the Stones lose that $51 million class action suit, that still gives them a gross revenue of $386 million <laughs> on the tour, and they'd still have the biggest grossing rock tour of all time. A bigger bang indeed. That is a track from an album that is still not out. Uh, Guns N' Roses' long-promised, long-worked-upon uh, Chinese Democracy, a, a record that is a decade-plus in the making. The reason we bring it up is that Guns N' Roses, a.k.a. the Axl Rose Corporation, he's is the out only, on the road yet again. He's the only one left. Yes, he's the only link back to the uh, early days of the original Sunset Strip bad boys of the late 80s and early no 90s. No Slash, no Izzy Stradlin, nobody. No Duff. They're all gone, except for, for Axel. He's out on the road again. He's playing songs off of an album called Chinese Democracy that he has promised for, as we said, a decade. Still no sign of that record. Who knows? It could show up one of these days. But, you know, more and more it looks less and less likely. I felt like deja vu. They played in Chicago the other night. And, Jim, it just felt like the same show I saw four years ago. I didn't they were go. playing the same tracks. I, I didn't even review it. There's no new album. Yeah. And, and they were lousy four years ago. Back then was Buckethead on guitar. Right. And, uh, and Tommy Stinson from The Replacements. Who's in the current uh, faux guns? Stinson is still in the band. Uh, Buckethead is gone, but they've got three other guys. Uh, Robin Fink, Richard Fortas, Ron Bumblefoot Thal, each of oh, whom man. had major, major guitar solos in the midst of this two-and-a-half-hour set. As usual, Axel not only played... The new stuff from the long-promised Chinese democracy record, but a ton of stuff from Appetite for Destruction. None of the new stuff equals the power of that early stuff that he wrote with the original members of Guns N' Roses. And it's odd because he was obviously trying to update the Guns N' Roses sound as he was making this record. So he was incorporating things like trip-hop beats, which sounded pretty cool like in 96, 97. <laughs> and now they but sound now old. they already <laughs> sound dated. I mean, this record is going to be out of date when it comes out. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Oh, my, what's going to come first? The next album from My Bloody Valentine or Guns N' Roses? <laughs> I can tell you that I, I could actually look forward to a My Bloody Valentine record. Yeah, that we were hearing celebrate. these Chinese democracy tracks live, I, I can't see that any Anyone is anticipating this record. She's cuddly and she's bouncy. She's like a rubber ball. I bounce her in the kitchen and I bounce her in the hall. And now my life is different since Sally came my way. I wake up in the morning and have her on a tray. She's everything they said she was and I wear a permanent grin. And I only have to worry in case my girl wears thin. listening to a little bit of The Police, and uh, specifically Andy Summers, the guitar player. He wasn't the guy, the most famous singer in the band. Uh, there was another guy named Sting <laughs> in that band. He didn't but, get to uh, do it that often, but he did the monologue on that track. Yes, he wrote he, that song. Yes, he did. And Summers was the guitar player in the band, and you may not realize it, folks, but a lot of those signature melodies, a lot of those signature riffs, a lot of those things you remember 
about police songs are because of Andy Summers' contribution to that band. I mean, it was a three-piece band with three incredibly talented musicians who often did not get along. Andy Summers laid it all out in this uh, tremendous autobiography, One Train Later, that has just come out. When he was passing through town, he stopped in the studio to chat with us. And, Jim, what's unique about this book is that it's actually very good. Yeah. Very few rock autobiographies in that class. Are worth reading, yeah. And, And the honesty with which he brings uh, the story of the police to life, not only talking about his days in that band, but his fascinating history prior to that. Uh, He was around some of the biggest uh, hit makers in England for a number of years before actually making his own name. No, it's true. All the guys in the police were uh, actually pretty old when the new wave explosion started, and they started uh, the police. Summers had had a career before that, through the progressive rock days of uh, early 70s England. Uh, He played with the Soft Machine when they toured the United States, played with a bunch of uh, people like that, sat in for Mike Oldfield of Tubular Bells fame. Half the book deals with that, and then where the police came from, and where it went. It was a fascinating conversation with him. So here he is. It's interesting, Andy, that you were uh, in the midst of a lot of important movements in England at, in the 60s and 70s before people really knew who you were. Yeah. But you were, your attitude, as expressed in the book, seems to be one of an outsider in a lot of this, these great movements that were moving through uh, rock history at the time. You were friends with Clapton. And the way you write about the blues, for example, the sort of blues mm-hmm. rock fusion, mm-hmm. you're, you're a little skeptical of, of these white mm-hmm. kids from mm-hmm. England sort of appropriating mm-hmm. this music from the Delta. Right. That was obviously what every guitarist in England had to do in, yeah. the, in, in the late 60s. Well, yeah, except for me. I, I guess, <laughs> you know, maybe there's like this enormous ego underneath. Rather than being part of a movement, I wanted to form a movement or be leading mm-hmm. it, you know, or create the movement. Clapton came up and, you know, took on the blues style and, and the sort of blues boom sort of really came from his uh, influence in the early days. Of course, he was stealing it lick from lick from Buddy Guy from Chicago, <laughs> let's face it. And I, there's an incident in the book where I mentioned that. You know, but, of course, he was great, you know, and is still is a great guitar player and very important. But I saw everyone going that way, and I was already influenced by a lot of other music, you know, like Middle Eastern music and Indian music and Thelonious Monk. I heard it differently, and I didn't want to just be an Eric Clapton clone. It wasn't interesting to me. But I didn't yet have the right setting in which to bring out all the things I was hearing. That was going to come quite a few years later in The Police. And then, you know, generally, I'm, I guess I'm just not a movement guy. I always think it's just like too bovine. Everyone sort of trade off going down the set and they all come back. (laughs) Wasn't for me, you know. And this kind of individuality, if I I ultimately have it or had it, was expressed in the police. The other thing, too, that I want to bring up with those early years, you were mentioning the great guitarists you were listening to. You were listening to a lot of jazz, Kenny Burrell, Wes Montgomery, Mm -hmm. you know, obvious influences on guitar player. But the fact that you brought up Thelonious Monk more than once in the book yeah. as sort of a, a, a touchstone for you. What was it in this piano player that you were hearing that you applied to your guitar playing? Well, again, I think, you know, possibly the concept or the idea that Monk, he was sort of, yes, he was a jazz player, but he really sort of created his own universe. It was his music. It sort of stood, it was within jazz, but it was sort of outside of it as well. It, this, this guy lived in his own head, his own, own universe. And it struck me that that's really kind of what you want to do. You, you know, I guess some people would call it finding your voice. So 
you know, like you could say, you know, as Monk came out of the jazz, you know, bebop in the 40s with Charlie Parker and all that, but created very much his own world. The police later on sort of emerged out of punk, but it, it became a singular voice that had nothing to do with it in a way. I found it was fascinating. You know, the police got a lot of crap initially for, for you and Stuart Copeland, the drummer, were older. Yeah, right. You know, Sting had that haughty air. I, mm-hmm. I think you call it Aryan uh, arrogance at one point or, or something, something like that. Probably. You know, uh, and compared to the Damned or some of the, the scruffier mm-hmm. English mm-hmm. punk bands, mm-hmm. uh, you guys had nothing in common with them. So you were right. suspect in the British press, this question of authenticity. Here mm-hmm. you were in a role, as you were saying, Clapton's stealing buddy guy, pretending mm-hmm. he's from the Delta. But here you guys are in a role, literally dying your hair platinum mm-hmm. blonde and trying to fit in with the punks yeah well a couple of responses to that i mean absolutely yeah we were in that era and we, i came to the, the band in this rather murky fashion of okay we're a punk band you know and i just come back as you know in the book you know come back from university in america i was sort of loaded with music and you know i got so much music in me now and being trained like classical and so what do i do yeah. join a punk band and yeah. all that train. Yeah, <laughs> where so. i'm not allowed literally not allowed yeah. the victim was no solos no solos um part of the era uh you know that was the thing you know they were sort of spitting on us and looking down on people who could actually play their instruments we were clearly a fake band i really joined sting stewart a, a very unsuccessful band and threw my all my chances away because there was nothing no future no gigs no songs and they weren't even a real punk band. Uh, but what I felt was some kind of instinctual thing. Uh, maybe mm. I sensed it that, you know, if I get with these guys and with my guitar playing, we can really turn this into something. All we hoped for really was to be a good band and maybe get gigs eventually and maybe get on someone else's tour. We had no idea that it would go where, in fact, it went. Jim and I were just talking about uh, the band, Andy, and we were thinking back to those days. Nobody really sounded like the police, and nobody to this day, really sounds like the police. Mm-hmm. The trick was, how do you forge this new sound and still manage to, like, people were talking, I remember in the States, maybe in the UK there was a lot of this that are fake punk band. In the United States, people were talking about these guys, oh, another punk band from England. You sound very much of the moment, and yet you sounded like no other band out there. <laughs> Nobody really sounded like you guys in terms of the way you used space, the way you used counterpoint, the way you used harmonics. Point in the book early on when you started playing together, I think you say very pointedly, in a nutshell, we suck. <laughs> you, you, well, were, you were basically very disappointed in what was happening early on with that band. What flipped the switch where yeah. things started making that transition well, to that? Okay, yeah. Cool well, when sound. I first joined the band, uh, you know, all there was was really to, to be – you know, and this really came from Stuart, actually. I'm not trying to say this in a, any sort of dissing way whatsoever. He kind of got that. Stuart was the motivator. He got Sting down from Newcastle. He was the one that thought this is where it's happening. And he was right. He came out of like an ultimate hippie band, the Curved Air, and then wanted to be a punk band. So that made him suspect right from the start. But then he quickly cobbled these first, you know, half dozen songs together. And they were... <laughs> <laughs> one, was, one was about how the landlord sucks, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, all that kind of stuff. But there was no real songwriting voice. I mean, it was just like, this is what it's supposed to sound like. Well, someone who'd been around playing as much as I had, it's just like absolute BS, you know. I wasn't going to 
But what changed it was like, okay, now I'm in the band. Okay, then we start, we commit to each other. Okay, we are the trio. Then we start really rehearsing. And now with my presence and this whole other set of guitar information in the band, Sting's songwriting talent really begins to flower because, you know, suddenly he's got the foil where all this stuff that he had also, you know, I mean, because he came out of a jazz fusion band. He was interested in classical guitar. He had a lot of information. He was a, you know, deeper musician. He wasn't just some, like, rocker who just picked up a guitar three months before. He was the real thing. And then I got with it, with him, and I was the real thing, too. And then it and started... And so was Stewart, a, well, a great drummer. Absolutely. And then so really what happened was that we, you know, there was all this information, but it's not like we sort of said, oh, well, you know that chord, and, you know, let's, you know, we just started reacting to one another, and this stuff just organically started to come out. You know, and then within a couple of months, we were sort of in new territory. This is the way we played. I mean, with a slight conscious decision to say, well, we don't really want to sound like anybody else, but we didn't say, well... To do that, what we need to do is never play a bar chord. We never sort of formalized it like that. Well, see, I think that's one of the strengths of this book, Andy. I've rarely read any musician. Uh, possibly, I'd have to go to maybe Charlie Mingus's uh, Beneath the Underdog. Yeah. So so uh, capture uh, with such crystalline clarity uh, the, the combination of dumb luck and 20 years of hard work and talent. Uh, you know, yeah. Sting brings in the song Roxanne. It's mm-hmm. not quite flying. Right. And, and tell us what happened. I mean, this entire sound of one of the best bands in rock history comes yeah. from this one moment in a cruddy rehearsal space. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, Sting's Francis, his wife at the time, had gone back to Ireland, and he was on his own. So, I said, oh, why don't you come stay with us, you know, uh, me and my wife, Kate. And um, so he came to stay with us and sort of slept on the couch, you know. We were looking after him, and he, of course he was, you know, trying to come up with songs. And we'd just come back from this failed gig in Paris, and he... You know, observed the prostitutes there and came up with this idea for Roxanne, the name of this girl. But he was playing it like a bossa nova on a nylon string guitar. You know, it was like very sweet. Like, mm. If you go and play that, we're going to get killed. Like that, you know, <laughs> this is the punk scene, you know. So we ended up in this hairdresser's flat a few days later. You know, we were kind of mooching around, couldn't think of anything to play. And then I said, well, what about that Roxanne thing, you know? Mm. Let's try that, you know, although it was a boss nova. But we started to play around with it and, of course, started to change the beats. And within a couple of hours, we had this thing together and we were kind of really pleased with ourselves. So that was, you know, in the most unlikely squalid circumstances, you know, it came to light. And you make the point that within six months, uh, this combination of Copeland's inside-out reggae-influenced drumming, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sting being able to to uh, do these weird interval things with his vocals off of your minimal guitar playing. You, yeah. you were playing not traditional chords, no bar chords. You were then able to policify your verb, yeah, right. any song that you wanted. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we could. We suddenly realized we had this way. We could take any piece of material and probably make it sound like us. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Later on in the show, we're going to have reviews of the new albums from the Deftones and Clips. But when we come back, more of our discussion with Andy Summers of The Police.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. My partner is Jim DeRogatis of the Chicago Sun-Times. And uh, what you're hearing is a little bit of Spirits in the Material World from the Police's fourth album, Ghost in the Machine. We're in the midst of a discussion with uh, the police guitar player and now author, Andy Summers. Author is right, Greg, and One Train Later is a rare rock autobiography in its unflinching honesty and its sense of humor. In fact, there's a great section about the making of Ghost in the Machine that we asked Andy to read for us. This time, the studio feels more like a canvas for dirty fighting. The stakes have been raised, and instead of rejoicing in the unbelievable success we have created together, we lose sight of the big picture and go on in emotional disorder, each one of us battling for his own territory. In the deeper recesses of our collective soul, there is a bond between us, but it's getting veiled by the arm wrestling, the internecine battling and striving, the pushy maleness of it all. There was a humiliating episode in the studio one day when as a result of all this tension and loss of perspective, Sting goes berserk on me, calling me every name under the sun with considerable vehemence, leaving everyone in the room white-faced and in shock. It's an excruciating moment. I don't know whether I feel my pain or his pain more. But it is a deep wound, an outward manifestation of the frustration Sting must feel on the inside. Yeah. There was something that never made sense to me. I saw the first show that the police did at the Madison Square Garden, and I'd seen you before at the bottom line. So mm-hmm. I was a real drum geek. So I bought tickets intentionally behind the stage, and I would sit there and I would watch the drummers because uh, I wanted to learn what they were doing. And Copeland had, of course, about 10 or 12 mounted toms. And I was a young Catholic school kid from, from New Jersey. I had never seen strings of curses so creatively unbelievably just I mean I didn't know one could say such vile things written in magic marker on each of his tom heads yes. and I was and, and he would slam really hard and I'm thinking what could possibly make this guy that mad and now you've answered the question <laughs> yeah that full on aggression right yeah right on the drums wow yeah. but this this ride was not that hard day's night Beatles joyous thing it was it was very very difficult yeah, but, uh, you know, of course, the media liked to play this up far more than it really... I mean, we weren't at each other's throats day and night. I mean, there was a very deep bond, a lot of camaraderie, a lot of good times. And then, you know, we'd, we'd probably tough it out in the studio. How, I, how much do you think that the, that, that the... What you called the raging egos, how much do you think that the fights added to the creativity? I think they add a lot, actually. Because I think, really, uh, the music was a very tight compromise with everybody, you know, really making sure his part of it. But that's, I, I just think that should be par for the course for any really great rock band because you've got to have that tension. You can't be three mellow dudes doing this because it ain't going to work. <laughs> you get play. the Grateful Dead, yeah. Well, and also the, the, the songwriting. Uh, you mentioned the tensions, you know, got into the songwriting. Uh, Sting sort of usurped that role eventually. You and Stuart were both uh, songwriters as well. Mm-hmm. Um was it just a case of voting out a song or voting in a song? I mean, how were those tensions resolved uh, well, as to what songs were going to get yeah. on the records? All of those things, really. I think we tried every process, you know, like what goes on, what doesn't go on, you know. But clearly, you know, I mean, Sting was pushed. Well, I mean, let's face it, he is a great songwriter and, you know, he's the singer. It's hard to compete with that when you've got, got someone with a voice like that and, a, and combined with a songwriting talent, you know. I mean, uh, it's just, it was hard to beat with it. And in the end, you just have to sort of give up. And particularly like on the third or fourth, fourth album, I think, I thought, man, I've got some great songs for this one. This is going to be, I'm going to get half the album. 
Mm-hmm. Hello. <laughs> you know, it, it was clear it was not really democracy anymore. Um, it was getting hard, you know. And I, that particular album, I thought I was a bit cheesed off about because I thought, hmm, some of these other songs that, you know, whose are not as good as mine. Mm, but, you know, for the sake of keeping the ship afloat, you have to kind of flow with it and just go, well, thank God I'm in this album. I'm, I'm going to leave. I don't think so, you know. It's a delicate question, but how were the songwriting royalties split up? Did you well, share? We, no, actually, that's a good question because, I mean, this is the thing that really breaks bands up mm-hmm. very early on. One guy gets all the money. I mean, should I not have gotten half the money for every breath you take without that guitar lick, for instance? That's not the way it works. But actually what we made, and I won't go to the actual figures, but we made a, you know, a fairly equitable agreement between the three. It was very early on. I mean, right about the time of recording the first uh, album where we would uh, call have something called a ranger's fee so that we would all get paid something, no matter who wrote the song, because it was three of us and because all three of us were so integral to the way a track sounded, the f- track that eventually would become a big hit, we all got a, a, a kind of a, 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 what's the right word, an inducement, a, p- <laughs> a payment, you know. So it was, you know, that, and that seemed very fair to me. You raise a good point. Those songs, those demos, I would love to hear the demos of those songs before mm. you mm. put your hands on them because mm. the way you describe what was happening in the studio, I think deepens the appreciation because a lot of people look back and they go, well, that was Sting's band. And they don't realize, like, what would Walking on the Moon have sounded like if you hadn't played those chords the way you played them? Take those chords out of there and suddenly what kind of a song is it anymore? way this track sounded was absolutely what we did to them they did you know everybody who started uh, off with a it sounded like yes or something it had a huge sort of rolling synthesizer part and it didn't sound anything like the police you know and it, we had to get it down as lean so many of the songs uh, you know what's another one like when the world is running down that sound of the guitar you know and the way Stuart would turn it around they didn't start off sounding like the police. We'd always have to kind of work them into this. So the tracks are absolutely the three of us, no matter who sort of generated the original idea. Did Sting begin to resent the fact that his Sting songs became police songs? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think emotions were becoming complex. I mean, to say a word like resentment, I don't know if he resented it. You know, he knew he was gonna, we were going to sell millions of, do- of albums at that point. It was just clear that's where it was going. But he uh, tried to foist a keyboardist upon you for a while. That, that lasted three well, days. Yeah, that didn't go too well. Um, he'd been away and um, got hooked up with a very persuasive guy up in Canada who absolutely insisted he should be all over the albums that we did. He's basically trying to join the band. Mm. And then we turned up in Montserrat, and Stuart and I had no idea about this. But, I mean, the guy 
was such a joke with trying to foist himself on us, playing riffs, standing. I was like, you've got to listen to this. I'd love to have this on my album. Oh, my God, listen to what I'm playing. I can't believe I'm <laughs> yeah, man. You know, even Sting was like, it just became a joke. Yeah. He, 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 he just was not a subtle guy. And uh, within three days, he talked himself right out of it. He was yeah. gone. Yeah. And we went back to the real thing, yeah. <laughs> huh. So so the magic that, that you three were able to do on stage, you, yeah. you know, it seems uh, ridiculous that you're not able to bury the hatchet, whether it's for one gig uh, as, as Pink Floyd did. We never thought we'd see that at, at, at Live 8. Yeah. Um, there's something that happens when you three play together. I certainly mm-hmm. respect you mm-hmm. not wanting to uh, subject yourself necessarily to it for the long run, but will we ever see you guys yeah. play again? Well, yeah. No, I mean, you're using bury the hatchet. I mean, I think we really... I don't know if there ever was a hatchet. Is there one sticking out the back of my head? Though? Can you just make sure? Well, has Sting read the book yet? I don't know. We'll find out. Oh, yeah. Not a hatchet, but a knife, yeah. actually. Uh, uh, or a loot. Oh, <laughs> no, actually, we're very friendly. I mean, to be honest, you know, I've been out with Sting this year. We've had dinner and hung out a little bit. And, you know, everything's very cool. You know, and it does put you back to, see, that's really what it was all about. Very friendly now, and I saw him in – I didn't actually see him, but we spoke on the phone this week in New York. He, he, we were both signing at different Barnes and Noble stores. Ah. I did say to him, so it's come to this, has it? To, <laughs> um, you know, dueling Barnes and Noble stores at this point, you know. But um, no, and then and Stuart, of course, lives very close to me in L.A., and we, we mm. actually spent a whole afternoon last week jamming for some uh, German uh, TV art show. It, things are very clear right now. I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily going to lead to a reunion. Um, it would be great. But because the other thing I have to always say is that I don't sit around waiting for the phone to ring because, right. you know, I'm a creative person and I wrote this book. I'm promoting that. And then I've got another record coming out in the new year. You know, you get on with your stuff. You no, know? and you're a great photographer. Yeah. I mean, the book ends very abruptly at the end of The Police. It seems so dramatic and a good writing thing. You know, you walk out on that stage and that's where the book ends. Of course, right. my life's gone. I've made far more records than I did with the police since yeah. then. And it's just been nonstop. I mean, maybe there's another book in that if I can think of enough anecdotes and ways to write <laughs> it. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, so that's the way it is. If and when, you know, I mean, Sting's response, standard response, I might say, is that I've never said never. And mm. um, clearly, you know, it would be a phenomenal thing to do. One of the issues, I think, with uh, with Sting since he left the police is that, uh, as you point out in the book, you guys were very strong-willed in your own way. Um, and it doesn't seem like he has enough uh, guys who will tell Sting no <laughs> in his life nowadays. That's just my general impression of his solo career. I mean, do you have any comments about the kind of music you've heard from Sting well, post-police? Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I think he's written some beautiful songs. You know, I mean, amongst all those albums, there's some really great ones there. Um, and I don't really want to comment negatively on Sting because uh, why would I? You know, I mean, I, I think about the history we shared and uh, and with Stuart, and uh, you know, I think of these guys of my my brothers. I, I love them, and uh, I will never want to get negative about it. You know, and I think it would be stupid anyway because if you ever want to do a reunion tour like that, you, you can't get like that. And I just think we we're so lucky to have had that. I mean, I think Sting is a great musician. Um, I admire him for this last album he's done. You know, I mean, it's something that I certainly understood, and uh, that's where it's at. I just like to—it's not—it's not even neutral. It's not like, oh, well, I'm neutral about it. I think these are great guys. It's so important in my life, and that you know, I'll always stay close to them. What do you think, uh, Andy, in terms of your police contributions? You talk. Uh, it's a terrific anecdote in the book about your guitar playing on "Every Breath You Take," one of the 
mm-hmm. best-known songs in the English language probably in the last 20, 25 <laughs> years. Yeah. But is there a moment that stands out for you in, in, in your police career that you really cherish in terms of your contribution to it? Won't you be my girl, right? I'll be a Well, I mean, you know, all the guitar stuff and all that. I mean, Every Breath You Take is a great example of like, well, that's the one that every guitar player learns ultimately and it is the one that went all the way around the world including Puff Daddy Diddy or whatever they want to call him you know <laughs> yeah. ri- ripped it off totally and sold 30 million copies <laughs> yeah that would be a moment and then other than that I would say you know just the early days of touring with the police when it was just sort of us against the whole world and trying to really prove our point you know I mean nights like the first night when we arrived in the US and played at CBGB's incredible you know, these are the deep memories you know more than like when we're getting bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, and it's just this incredible blur of concerts. It's those early little moments that... that it was, it was literally hours. I think you said it was two hours from getting off the plane to being on stage at yeah. CBGB. Yeah. And then for it to all make its way to Shea Stadium. It's just, a, mm. you know, it's an extraordinary voyage. Andy, it's been a complete pleasure. Uh, the great book, One Train Later, Andy Summers. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. It was great to be here. You know, Greg Summers was talking about CBGB. I did not see the police at CBGB, but I saw them at the bottom line in New York City. And it was a very small venue, intimate venue for non-New Yorkers. Uh, It must have been their second tour. Sting jumped on top of my table. (laughs) And I just remember being kind of cheesed off because he kicked over my $5 Coke. (laughs) It was a little annoying, but it was a cool moment. You are listening to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. When we come back, Mr. Cott's going to lay a Desert Island jukebox pick on you, and we're going to review the new albums from the Deftones and Clips. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. What you're listening to is a little bit of the new Clips record, Hell Hath No Fury. That's a track called Ride Around Shining. Clips, a uh, duo from Virginia Beach, Terrence Pusha T. Thornton and Gene Malice Thornton, siblings who were childhood friends of the producer of this record, as well as their first album, Pharrell Williams, of the Neptunes fame. Pharrell Williams is one of the most important producers of the last five to ten years. 
brought Clips along in his wake after tremendous pop success, finally got an album out for his childhood friends, the Thornton Brothers, as Clips in 2002 with a record called Lord Willing that went gold, talked about the world that they knew best, which was uh, the Coke dealer world. And while it put off some people, it also struck some people as a journalistic authenticity taken to the 10th degree. Pretty sinister-sounding stuff, as you can tell from uh, that track right around Shining. It took them four years to, to do the follow-up. The record company didn't want to put it out. The follow-up album sat on the shelf for four years. Meanwhile, Clips started putting out mixtapes on the Internet. And basically, an underground market developed for this new music that Clips was creating. Tremendous buzz about this record on the Internet for months, even years, before it eventually surfaced. Now it's finally here. It's called Hell Hath No Fury. Before we talk more about this record, let's listen to a track from it. Uh, It's called Keys Open Doors. And no, we ain't talking about the jingle jangle (laughs) keys in your pocket. We're talking about kilograms of white powder. It's Clips on Sound Opinions. Keys open doors. Keys open doors. Keys open doors. Keys keys open doors. Yo, make your skin crawl. Press one button. Let the wind fall. Who gon' stop us? Coppers, the mind of a no shopper. Seeing my life through the windshields of choppers. I ain't spent one rap dollar in three years. Holler, money's the least dragged by a dog collar. Now follow. This is my ghetto story. Like sham ice pea is the done daughter. Open the frigid there. 25 to life in here. So much white, you might think your holy Christ is near. Throw on your Louis V millionaires to kill the glare. Ice trays, not a all you see is pictures paired. The realest shit I ever wrote. Not pocket. Inspired, hot inspired, my real this quote. She never cooked my why? Never trust her with your child. And you make believe rappers, I smile. Ha! Canal Street in my style. Like you internet sharing my files. You my space, so kill the comparison. I'm South Beach sipping on Seraphin. Royalty check, I never been. Money clean through Merrill Lynch. Accountant just gas with the smell of it. Meet the dealer, ain't a driller. So you ain't got a question why I push it, don't feel ya. Now hit the doors. Keys open doors. That's Virginia's The Clips with a track called Keys Open Doors. You know, Greg, as you know, I'm uh, against what gangster rap has become. It's just become such a cliche where again and again and again we hear people talking about how bad they are, glorifying pointless violence, how much disdain they have for women, and how cool it is to sell drugs. It would be easy to lump The Clips in with that, but that's not what's happening on this album. As you said, journalistic piercing insight into or just description of the world of the drug dealer they reference stuff like starsky and hutch but it's it's <laughs> comical and it's almost like you know that may be your image but let me tell you what it's really like in the streets these guys really do seem to know either that or they are novelistically great in capturing details that they've heard from others i think it's a lot like an album we reviewed earlier in the year ghostface killers fish scale yes. in the sense of the way it captures the world of dealing cocaine and really documents sides of it that you haven't heard before. However, musically, it's not like anything else. You know, there's one track that kind of sounds Dirty South and it's a really catchy hook. It's Womp Womp What It Do, uh, which is a great track. The rest of it sort of sounds from Mars. It's like that East Coast rap sound uh, that's very stripped down and, and spooky and scary but the Neptunes are approaching it in a way that's completely new Hello new world, here we come on the twinkie trains with the hood screaming we on our way 
Can't forget where I come from, so I extend my hand to my man screaming, I'm on my way. Yes, I rap, but best believe them things still get wrapped by poppy screaming. Yeah. It's on its way. Can't wait for the next mother from my hood to say, Look out, world, I'm on my this way. This goes out to my AI. You know, th- this record really sounds like nothing else I've heard in a long time, and it's so good that it almost redeems the Neptune string of lousy records lately. And, and we're going to be talking about that new Gwen Stefani, speaking uh. of Neptunes, uh, in, in a couple of weeks. But boy, uh, we'd given up on them, and we had used to love them. And here they kind of redeem themselves. The rappers are great. You know, Pusha T and Malice both uh, are alternately poignant. You know, Mama, I'm so sorry. They're talking to their mother about, about a life they basically wasted. They're, they're sexy. They're frightening. They're funny. It's a completely new approach on very, very familiar grounds. Well, I think this is one of the best albums of the year, Jim, and I'll tell you why. People are going to be automatically put off by the subject matter. They're going to say, oh, it's an album about drugs and about dealing drugs. You know, it's an incredibly superficial way of looking at this album. To me, it's about the people who are dealing the drugs and their motivation for it. And it's a full range of emotions. It's 12 songs unified by this concept, and we are getting inside the heads of these people, and it is not a pretty place. I mean, what a creepy soundtrack. I mean, Pharrell Williams, as he said, I think completely redeemed his last couple of years of work. I mean, every every piece of music in this record sounds like it belongs here. I mean, the, the, the way the accordion sounds like uh, gasping in that song, Mama, I'm Sorry, or, or the way he used those Caribbean steel drums, yeah. normally kind of this jovial-sounding instrument, but they sound absolutely sinister and womp-womp. Man, I showed up, pimpy and cold up. I hit straight to the bar just to post up. I rolled a throw up, my cup mowed up. Don't just stand there with your nose up. Come on, whamp, whamp, what it do? What it do? Huh? Whamp, whamp, what it do? What it do? Whamp, whamp, what it do? What it do? Huh? Whamp, whamp, what it do? It's really well done sonically. Lyrically, these guys are, are cold, deadpan, but the detail, the level of detail they bring to their music is, is really astute. And, and it ends on this really terrifying note. There's a track called uh, Nightmares at the end, which is exactly what it says it is. Yeah, yeah, uh, this guy, is, he's losing his mind. He's unraveling. To my mind, it is a, uh, de- a decade later response to the ghetto boys' mind playing tricks on mm. me, where another tale of an, an inner city gangster losing his mind because of the lifestyle he's leading. I make big money, drive big cars, everybody know me. It's like I'm a movie star, Virginia Nights, selling hard white to selling out shows. Every gangster love my flow. Still I creep low, thinking chicken trying to harm me. Hoping my karma ain't coming back here to haunt me. Was it that again I took his powder with a smile? Praying the Lord, the gun ain't popping, hit the child. People may say, well, they're glorifying the drug trade. Well, geez, if this is glorifying it, I mean, what would be the terror-stricken version of this because these guys are constantly looking well, over their shoulders. They are constantly yeah. under pressure. They are. There's a sense here of my my life could end any day now. I could be in prison. I could be dead. I'm living for the moment. And uh, there's a sense of there are consequences from this kind of behavior that are just running through this entire record. Well, there's some of that. that but they also a say, you know, story. Uh, I'm the Black Martha Stewart. Well, it's uh, funny. There's you know, humor as well. Making cocaine quiches, p- money piles high as my nieces. <laughs> you know, uh, so yeah, that's it. I don't know what people take away from it. Uh, that's not a really hard job is to say, is this good for, for people to listen to or not? What it is is a fascinating document, musically excellent, lyrically excellent, of the life of a drug dealer. Absolutely. I think the sub- it's beyond subject matter. I mean, as, as a great novelist uh, can make a, a book about 
about Lolita, about pedophilia, and turn that into great literature, you can certainly make a, a great album out of something as noxious as, as the inner city drug trade, and they have done it. We rate things on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, and I, I usually hesitate to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like it's a buy it for both of us. Absolutely. Buy it record, uh, one of the best records of the year. Ah, yes, the dulcet sounds of the <laughs> Deftones. That is a song called Hole in the Earth from their new album, Saturday Night Wrist. You know, Greg, just as the clips are an example of a genre that is dominated mostly by ridiculously bad sounds these days, gangster rap, the Deftones came to us from a genre that was even worse, if anything, the <laughs> the dreaded new metal explosion. That's NU with the umlaut, new metal <laughs> explosion of the uh, late 90s that was headed by the much reviled corn and the even worse limp biscuit. These guys came up from Sacramento and were part of that scene. Rap rock, in the sense that they, there was heavy metal, but there was also a DJ, this guy Frank Delgado, who was part of the mix. But there was a little hint of something different in the first album. And then as the group progressed, they got more and more interesting and intriguing. In 2000, they released an album called White Pony, where suddenly the guitarist Stephen Carpenter and the DJ Frank Delgado were were imitating Public Enemy in mm-hmm. the sense of these dense walls of noise and My Bloody Valentine, perhaps one of the most inventive guitar bands of the last uh, two decades. And then I went out to the studio when they were uh, just finishing up their 2003 self-titled album, The Deftones, and spent some time with these guys for a cover story in Guitar World. And there really was more there than than meets the eye. They were really interested at that point in The Cure and Depeche Mode and in incorporating some of that kind of swirling keyboard mope rock moodiness into mm-hmm. their sound. Rhythmically, they've always been really intriguing. They're, they're Rhythms tend to be complex and polyrhythmic. The vocalist Chino Moreno does some rapping and some singing, and there was a lot in this mix, and it was really interesting. Now comes Saturday Night Wrist. Three years in the making, they turn to Rock's king of tasteful bombast, <laughs> Bob Ezrin, the man who brought us The Wall by Pink Floyd, all of the best Alice Cooper albums, Berlin by Lou Reed, and the best Kiss albums. What a match. Let's hear a song, Greg, and then I'm eager to hear your thoughts on this record. It's a track called Mine, which features M-E-I-N, by the way, which features a guest vocal by Serge Tankian coming in from System of a Down.
That's the Deftones on Sound Opinions. That's a track called Mine from the new album Saturday Night Wrist. It's interesting, Jim. When we think about metal, we, we think about these rules that it has. You know, it's got, it lives or dies with the, with the riff, the big yeah. guitar riff, and it's never, ever sensual, you know, sexy. We yeah. don't think of metal of ha- having those two things. These guys defy all those bromides. They're not about big guitar riffs. They're not about riffs at all. It's all about texture. Yeah, the guitars don't sound like guitars often. There's this big wash of of noise. He has a seven-string guitar. Yeah. I don't know. Not a 12, not a six. He's got seven. I don't know why. You've got to have seven to make those sounds, I guess, you know? And the other thing is that sensuality, and and, and that sort of comes back on on, on Senor Chino Marino, who sounds like he's got about 17 voices in his head at different times, (laughs) and he's trying to have a conversation (laughs) with all of them, you know, at one point. I mean, he's literally flipping... These personalities back and forth. He's screaming one minute. He's sobbing the next minute. He's whispering, muttering something under his breath the next. Really interesting vocalist. Really interesting record in terms of tone and texture. I mean, it is a very plush-sounding record. You, you noted the Bob Ezrin production. It is big and plush, and it's yeah. got the, it's amazing tone. I mean, this, this record sounds great over headphones. In a lot of ways, it is not a metal record at all. something new, something different, and I applaud this band for making the progression that it has made over the years. I think the one thing that is lacking here is songwriting. It, it's a great sound, yeah. but I'm not hearing terrific songs all the way through, there, including there's a, there's just one hideous throwaway Everybody, that, uh, even the hardest, the hardest core fan hates it. You know, Moreno does some hip-hop, techno, electronic experimenting. This is, a, this is coming from that. A woman named Annie Hardy of Giant Drag comes in and does this monologue yeah. over the song Pink Cell Phone. Everybody hates it. It's an awful track. You just know the other guys in the band were groaning. Yes. It, it really takes this album down a whole notch, which is sad. Pursuing the wrong ideals and goals that lead you into sickness unto bloodbath. And from this sickness springs the belief in the one true power. That cure that promised to erase the symptoms that stood between you and your goal. You know, as far as I'm not being metal, I think that a lot of metal today doesn't have great songwriting, mm-hmm. and and the death metal world suffers from that. You know, there there are bands that are all about the sound, but you can't walk out and hum a song not the way you could a classic Black Sabbath. This is lusher than that, though. I mean, there there are some really melodic yeah. moments that they've got. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think it's a, it's definitely a step up. But as I said, it's not consistent enough all the way through to make me want to say this is a definite uh, buy it record. Wow. Right now, it's a burn it for me because I love the tones, I love the textures. A couple of the songs are great, but end to end, it's not a great record. No, I think you've got to buy this record if you're at all interested in hard rock that is trying to push the envelope and redefine itself. There is one truly, truly lousy track, <laughs> but uh, you know that that's one out of the whole album, and the rest of it's just extraordinary stuff. So I, I say it's a buy it record, Greg. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Remember, we were shipwrecked together. 
Each week on Sound Opinions, either Greg or I take a turn dropping a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox pick and giving you a track that we can't live without. What have you got for us, Mr. Cott? Well, Jim, I have to say, on this show, once in a while, I feel like you and I, collectively, between the two of us, Jim, are John Peel. We get to have these amazing <laughs> guests come in and play live music for it's us true. at uh, the Jim and K Maybe studio here at WBZ. I think it's it's a real privilege. John Peel, of course, the late, great BBC disc jockey who uh, was an incredible tastemaker and had numerous musicians come through his his studio and, and record music for him. Uh, the latest example of which is a, a new record, actually, by... P.J. Harvey called the Peel Sessions, 1991-2004. I want to take this to my Desert Island with me right now, mainly because it has some tracks on here that I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall at the session, the first session that Polly Jean Harvey played for John Peel back in 1991, well before her first album came out, uh, the Dry album. It came out in 1992, hit like a hurricane. I mean, the reviews were just over-the-top great. Here's this little 20-year-old woman from a sheep farm on a, on a coast of England walking into John Peel's studio with this big guitar and big ideas about art and blues and femininity and laying this song on him called Sheila in the Gig, which had to have blown his mind when he yeah. heard it for the first time. Sheila in the Gig is a reference to the Irish fertility goddess represented in carvings through the centuries. There's some who see this as a positive symbol. There was others who see it as a misogynist label applied to exhibitionist women who were being warned against sins of the flesh. Mm-hmm. And Polly Jean Harvey turned it in this amazing song where she's essentially going through a, a dialogue, a war of the sexes, as it were, where she's talking about seducing a man and the man is coming back at her and saying, you exhibitionist, you Sheila in a gig, what are you doing? You know, you're, you're flaunting your sexuality. You shouldn't be doing that. And she's saying, well, why can't I do this? You know, mm-hmm. I'm a woman. Why, why can't I be who I am? And, and the song is essentially this war of the sexes dialogue, which really, to my mind, really sets up the career that Polly Jean Harvey would have over the last decade. I think one of the major artists of our time, and this is like early, early Polly Jean Harvey, uh, an amazing glimpse of what this artist was like. That's yeah, a testament a- to Peel's, Peel's ears that he was able to hear that this woman was going to be such a great artist and have her in even before her first album. Indeed. Uh, here's Polly Jean Harvey from the Peel Sessions, uh, Sheila in the Gig on Sound Opinions.
That's uh, Sheila in the gig from Polly Jean Harvey back when nobody knew who she was except maybe John Peel, uh, 1991. Terrific stuff, in my opinion. Speaking of opinions, next week we're going to have plenty of them. The Mid-Year Show, Jim, is my second favorite show of the year. The uh, Mid-Year, we, the best mid-year of so far. The Mid-Year Top 10, yeah. Best of, what we like. Next week is my very, very favorite show of the year because that is our full year wrap-up, our best of records of the year. You and I are going to go back and forth and pick our records of the year on next week's show. Absolutely, and, and no room to hide. These are the 10 <laughs> albums we each appreciated most. Some thank yous to say on the way out, Greg. Sound Opinions is produced by our intrepid team of Todd Bachman, Matt Spiegel, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. Mary Gaffney helped with our recording of Andy Summers. We get legal assistance from Dino Armiros. Tori Southside Malatia is our uh, executive producer and fearless leader. And Jim Russell is our man at American Public Media. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. See ya. See ya.